All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone this morning? A little liquid sunshine out there today. Not, not down on uh, the rain this year so far. Uh, let's open up with a word of prayer here today, and then we're going to finish out talking about the doctrine of the Bible today. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off last week, and, and uh, we'll finish uh, the doctrine of the Bible today. So let's, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for the ability to be here together and to worship you uh, with one another, and, and uh, just great to join hands uh, with our fellow believers and, and lift up praises to your name. And so, Father, we thank you, and, and we just ask your blessing upon this day as we study your word and look into these uh, different, uh, different issues, and, and we just pray that you'd help us to understand and, and to uh, walk away each, each and every Sunday as, uh, as better, better people who are more like Jesus. We just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, we uh, began the doctrine of the Bible, uh, and we ended off with kind of the, we were talking about inspiration, and we ended with talking about the extent of inspiration, like how far does inspiration go? Uh, and we mentioned the fact that, that uh, inspiration is, is verbal, and so it extends to the words themselves, and it's also what we call plenary, which means it extends to every part of the word and to all, uh, you know, everything that it kind of teaches and uh, implies, okay, that, that that is kind of the extent of, of where inspiration uh, goes. Now, as far as what inspiration does not guarantee, if you will, there are some things that inspiration does not necessarily touch upon. Uh, for instance, the inspiration, you know, the Bible records certain beliefs that others may have that are wrong. Well, the Bible's not guaranteeing that their wrong beliefs are inspired just because they are in the Bible. You guys kind of get the picture. Uh, the Bible records a lot of things uh, that are not, you know, what it is endorsing. And so let me read um, a list here. This is from uh, Norman Geisler, uh, Dr. Norman Geisler. Uh, he, he just passed away here this past year, but uh, a legendary uh, Christian theologian. Uh, and, and I mentioned last week when... Um, Back in the late 70s, I believe it was, when a, a group of, of conservative uh, Bible scholars got together to, to kind of write, uh, you know, a document defending the, the uh, doctrine of inerrancy. Uh, when they finally put that into a published work, uh, he was the one who was actually chosen to edit that published work. So he's he really an, uh, an expert on this, in, in this issue. Um, and, and so he, he has a, a thing here of uh, what are the things that, that, that inspiration does not necessarily guarantee. Because sometimes this is where skeptics try to use this against Christians and say, well, hey, this is in the Bible, so are you endorsing this or are you saying that this is, you know, this is, is accurate? And, and so uh, he, he lists this here, what are some of the limits on what inspiration, uh, you know, covers and what it does not cover. So I want I want to just read uh, a few of these to you. It says, it does not guarantee that every part of a parable is conveying a truth as opposed to the truthfulness of the point of the, parab the parable is illustrating. A parable was an ancient tool. It was used, it, they were very familiar 
uh, in ancient Judaism, and, and they were a story that someone would, would make up in order to teach a certain truth. They never expected the story to be true, only the point behind the story. Now, the story could be true, or it could not, and oftentimes the rabbi would simply make up a scenario, kind of like, you know, me as a teacher, I may use an example. Well, hey, if this happened, this would be an example of this. Well, you know, I made that up. And, and so parables were not expected to be actual events that took place. That does not take away from the inerrancy of Scripture, okay? And that's the point he's trying to make. Parables themselves were not necessarily accurate statements of a story that really happened. They were trying to prove a point, okay? And, and the point is what is inerrant, not necessarily the story itself, all right? Give me a couple other examples. Uh, not, uh, not everything recorded in the Bible is true as opposed to only what is taught or implied. As I said, the Bible at times records the, the false thoughts of people in the Bible. You know, some character that's pointed out as an evil person or someone who is committing a certain sin, and it will say this is what this person was thinking or why this person did that. Well, it's not endorsing that. It is simply saying that's what was on that person's mind. So the truth that it's trying to teach is true, but the, the example that it's given is, is, you know, is not something that the Bible is endorsing. You know, a lot of this is just common sense, but unfortunately some of the times we don't really use a lot of common sense when we study Scripture. You know, and, and, and of course skeptics, you know, they will always try to jump on those things and use them you know, to kind of uh, diminish uh, scripture in, in, in people's eyes. Uh, it does not guarantee that there are no exaggerations or hyperboles used. You know, again, hyperbole is a, is a part of human language. Me- metaphor is a part of human language. It, when the Bible says something like God is, is, is holding the, the, the earth on his shoulders, which it says, it doesn't literally mean that God's standing in space with the earth on his shoulders. It's using that as a figure of speech, all right? When the Bible says, you know, that we're held in God's hand, then the Bible also says that no one can see God, no one's ever seen him, he's pure spirit. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't have a physical body. Why is it saying that? Because we understand the concept of what it means to, to hold something in your hand and have it be safe there. Okay, and that's the point that it's trying to teach. So the Bible uses things like figures of speech. Let me just read one other one uh, just to give you a, an example here. Um, nor that it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee that all statements about the universe must be uh, from a modern astronomical perspective as opposed to a common observational standpoint. I mentioned this last week, you know, the Bible talks about the, the rising or the setting of the sun, but yet skeptics will say, well, we know the sun doesn't set or rise, well, you know, that's the, the rotation of the earth. Well, of course it is, but the Bible's not a book of astronomy. It's not trying to say that the sun is actually rising or setting. It's using a common phrase, the rising or setting of the sun, because that's observational. When we look at it, it looks like the sun is rising or it looks like the sun is setting. And that's why we have those phrases, the rising or setting of the sun. So again, the Bible is not trying to speak astronomically. It's trying to just speak observationally in that instance. 
There are some people who, and I've, I've mentioned this before, there are some people who take that and they say, well, see, that means, you know, everything revolves around the earth instead of the earth, you know, revolving around them. There's people that believe in a flat earth because, you know, the Bible talks about the edge of the earth. And people in modern day, we used to get, like, unbelievable amount of stuff, like, here at the church from different, all kinds of crazy organizations. Uh, you know, and you read it and you're like, ooh, okay. Um, I don't even know what to do with that. Uh, but, but that's an example of what I'm talking about. The, the, you know, astronomical truths are not what the Bible is, is about. It's t- it talks about those things observationally. And so it's not guaranteeing. The, the doctrine of inspiration is not guaranteeing that, you know, the earth is flat and you're going to fall off the edge because it talks about the edge of the earth, all right? So you guys get the idea. There are parts of speech, things like that, 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 that inspiration is not guaranteeing that those things are true, only the point that they are trying to make. All right, you guys get the point. And as I mentioned last week, and we'll talk a little bit more about this here in a minute, we, we also limit the, uh, what inspiration covers to the 66 books that we have in our Bible. Okay, we do not believe that the Apocrypha uh, is, is inspired scripture. Okay, you know, we as, as, uh, as Protestants, we disagree with, the, with Catholics on that, there's a few Protestants that also kind of accept that. Uh, though most, they they might include it in their Bible, but they'll include it as an appendix. Um, you know, so we we do not believe that the apocryphal books are you know inspired scripture. And like I said, we'll talk more about that. We're going to talk about canonicity here in in a minute. Now, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. We talked a little bit about this last week, but I, I do want to mention it again. I just want to uh, read something that uh, Dr. Geisler writes here. Um, I thought this was a, uh, a good statement on this. Uh, as I discussed last week, the, strictly speaking, the Bible does not spell out the doctrine of inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy is built off of, of other things that the Bible says. It's a logical conclusion to certain things that the Bible teaches. All right, let me, let me uh, read his statement here. It says, the doctrine of, in- of inerrancy is not directly taught in Scripture, although it is logically implied. Two things, however, are directly taught. One, the Bible is the Word of God, and, and we talked about that last week, what, what that meant. And two, God cannot err. God is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. He, he can't make an error. Okay? Now, the fact that those two things are taught, that the Bible is God's words, and God does not make errors, that's where we get the, the doctrine of inerrancy. It says the, logical, uh, the, the logically necessary result of these two premises is that three, the Bible cannot err. The terms inspiration infallibility and inerrancy are all related. Inspiration means breathed out by God, what comes from God himself. We talked about that last week, what what inspiration means. Infallibility means what has divine authority, what cannot be broken. Okay, It's infallible. It has divine authority because it's God's word. It's because it's inspired. Inerrancy means what is without error or wholly true. Okay, 
Now you can see the relation of those three things to one another. It says, what is inspired is infallible, since inspired means to be breathed out by God, and what is breathed out by God cannot be an error. Likewise, what is infallible, since it has divine authority, must also be an errant. A divinely authoritative error is a contradiction in terms. Okay, so it cannot have errors because it's infallible. All right? However, not everything inerrant is divinely authoritative. It, it doesn't, it, it goes kind of one dire- direction, but not necessarily the other. And he gives the example of a phone book. A phone book may have no errors in it, but it's, it's you know, it's not infallible. Yeah, you, just because you cannot find an error does not mean it has divine authority. You, how many of you have ever taken a test and got a perfect score on it? I hope everybody has at least once in your life. Perfect score. You didn't make an error. Okay, that particular test was inerrant, but, but it was not infallible. You know, you, you, you do not have divine authority. Your test did not have divine authority. You guys get the point? You know, so, so they, they flow kind of in, in, in one direction, but, but, you know, infallibility does not necessarily follow from inerrancy. Uh, it's a, he, he points this out. He said, hence, inerrancy is implied in the proper understanding of infallibility, but infallibility does not follow from inerrancy. So they kind of, you know, they, they, one leads to another. Inspiration leads to infallibility. Infallibility leads to inerrancy. But inerrancy itself does not guarantee infallibility because, you know, we can at times be inerrant about something we may do, but that doesn't mean we can, you know, try to claim some kind of divine authority, which people unfortunately do. Uh, and we talked about that a little last week. Uh, you know, there's all kind of um, kind of crazy ideas out there about people that who are considered as modern-day prophets or apostles that that speak inerrantly, and uh, that is just not uh, scripturally sound. So j- that's just a little bit more about uh, ab- about the doctrine of inerrancy. Now, I want to talk about canonicity. What do I mean by that? What what do I mean by canonicity? The word canon essentially means rule or measuring rod. And, and when I say rule, um, I'm talking rule as in like a ruler, okay? It, it, it means rule or measuring rod. It's how you determine whether something belongs somewhere, all right, or what the length is of something. Uh, you know, j- just Friday, my partner at work and I, uh, we were laying down lines on, on the floor, and, you know, so everything, so the lines are straight, uh, you know, and they're not all squiggly or running into one another. We have to take a ruler, you know, essentially a, a, a measuring rod. We, we take a ruler and we, we measure the beginnings and the ends to, and, and then lay down our lines in accordance to that, and that way we end up with straight lines. That's the whole idea. That's the concept. You, you, you measure things, you judge things to end up in straight lines or with the right things, all right? So that's what canon essentially means. When we say the canon of Scripture, we mean the accepted books of Scripture, what belong in the Holy Scriptures. You know, the thing we have to understand, and, and sometimes people don't, I don't really think, know this, there are many ancient Jewish and Christian writings Many, many of them. The, the Jews were very prolific writers, especially in the time period between the Testaments. 
in that time between the, the last, you know, kind of recognized prophet and the time Jesus came, in that stretch, there were, there's just an enormous amount of writings. That, a period of time that we refer to as Second Temple Judaism. Well, you know, they were very prolific, the writers. And many of the writings were, were you know, were very good. The Jews, uh, you know, had a, a great uh, adoration for these writings, used them often. In fact, at times, you, you even see some of them uh, referred to in, in the Bible. Glenn's about to, to start a series today on Second Peter. Second uh, Peter and Jude both refer to, to writings that, that, that come from this period, Okay. But they were not considered scripture. So there were a lot of writings there that were even very good writings, but they were not considered scripture. Just like today, walk into a Christian bookstore. There's thousands of books, but they're not scripture. You go to the Bible section to get the scripture. But the rest of it, they may be very profitable, they may be very good, but they are not scripture. Okay? So, you know, there, there was a ton of ancient writings. There was even ancient Christian writings. Unfortunately, we do not have a lot of the, the writings from the period of, of the, the apostles, of, the, of the, the, what we sometimes call the primitive church. Uh, we don't have a lot of their writings. Uh, you know, many people have wished for many years that some discovery would be made and, and here's writings by, like, you know, Peter or John or somebody like that uh, explaining how to... To, to understand the scriptures, but we don't have that. We don't have like a set of commentaries by, by you know, Peter and Paul. Uh, that just doesn't exist. Uh, you know, so we do have a lot of writings starting in kind of the, the late first century, early second century, and then going on, uh, people that we call the church fathers or the patristics. We, uh, we have a lot of their, their writings that have been kept and collected. Uh, and, and many of them are, are writing about how to live the Christian life and even commentaries on, on Scripture. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about inspiration or about uh, interpretation here later on today. So there was a lot of writings out there. So what is the Word of God and what is not? Okay? Well, that's where the idea of canonicity comes in, the idea of the measuring rod or the rule. Uh, the criteria for judging what books were scripture and which ones were not. Now, I want to stress something before we go any further into this. The fact that some get scripture. It was already scripture. For instance, the moment Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, it was scripture the moment he wrote it because God had inspired it. It was God's word the moment Paul wrote it down, okay? What we're talking about is recognizing what are the scripture works and what are not, okay? You know, canonicity is about the early church recognizing what was scripture, not them making it scripture. Again, this is a, an accusation that is often used by critics of the Bible, um, you know, I, I don't know how deep any of you have ever looked into you know, some of this stuff, but uh, particularly a, a, a group called the Jesus, uh, 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 the name just went out of my head, uh, not the Jesus Seminary, um, Jesus Seminar, yeah. I don't know why I wanted to add a, a Y to the end of it. Uh, the Jesus Seminar 
uh, a group of, of liberal, um, you know, Bible scholars, and I use that term pretty loosely with these guys, uh, you know, who tried to do everything they could to diminish the authority of the Bible. Uh, many of them are, are gone now. The original Jesus Seminar, uh, one of the leaders was a guy named John Dominic Crossan, uh, who was, I believe, at DePaul University. He just died here a couple years ago. Um, you know, but, but they tried greatly to diminish the authority of Scripture. Uh, and, and, and a lot of them kind of claimed that other books should be added to, to, you know, to the Word of God, uh, things that were, were written later. Um, so this is out there. This, this is something, this is a movement that is out there, and it's even kind of come into, uh, you know, kind of modern-day church life because these guys got a certain amount of publicity, you know, they, they were kind of like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. They made a lot of noise and made a lot of claims. And so they would get on t- TV and on the news and stuff like that. And then people like <laughs> like Dr. Geisler would, would then have to go out and kind of debate them and say, no, you guys don't really know what you're talking about. Uh, you're making false claims. Uh, you know, and, and, and so this, you know, this is out there. The claim that a lot of these groups made was, well, you, the, the early church just arbitrarily picked what was the Bible and what wasn't. They decided they wanted to keep these books, but they didn't want these books. So they determined what, the, what was Scripture. Well, that's false. That is never what the claim ever was. The early church never claimed to make Scripture. The claim was, we've looked at these things, and, and these things are Scripture. We are recognizing what already was Scripture. Okay? So you guys get the point. So it's important to understand that as we look at this, the, you know, these people didn't make these things Scripture. They didn't make them God's Word. They were already God's Word. All they did was recognize what was already true. Now, the Old Testament, how did we get the, the, the canon of Scripture that we have now in the Old Testament? Well, one, it was already pretty much ready to go when Christianity came about. Uh, you know, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament in our Bibles is actually the Hebrew Bible. It's the Bible the Jews used. It's the Bible Jesus used. You know, and it was pretty much, uh, you know, a standard of what was the, the canon and what wasn't when it came to the Old Testament. Let me read, uh, again, something from Dr. Geisler here about this that uh, may make this more clear to you. It says, the evidence indicates that the Jewish Protestant canon consisting of 39 books identical to the Hebrew Bible or what is our Protestant Old Testament and excluding the Apocrypha is the true canon. The Palestinian Jews represented Jewish orthodoxy. Therefore, their canon was recognized as the orthodox one. It was the canon of Jesus, of Josephus, of Jerome. And for that matter, it was the canon of many of the early church fathers, including Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, and Athanasius. Contrary to the Roman Catholic argument from Christian usage, and that is, I I know sometimes when we talk about this, uh, a lot of people will say, well, the Catholics don't have any argument for why they include the Apocrypha in the Bible. Well, they do. We just don't believe it's an accurate argument, but they do make an argument. You know, they have a whole series of points that they say is their reason for why they've included it. But we just don't, you know, feel that those are accurate arguments. 
Uh, and one of the, the, the big ones, one, one of the things that a lot of their arguments central, centers around is Christian usage. That, you know, these things were, uh, you know, because they were used so much by early Christians or by like late stage uh, Judaism, well, that means they should be included. Well, that's, you know, it, that means they were, they, they were, you know, revered by those people. That doesn't necessarily mean they were scripture. If they didn't include them in their scripture, why should we then come along and include them in scripture later? Okay, so that's, that's what he's speaking about here. Contrary to the uh, Roman Catholic argument from Christian usage, the true test of canonicity is prophetisity. In other words, did it come from a prophet? That is, prophetisity determines canonicity. God determined which books would be in the Bible by giving their message to a prophet. So only books written by a prophet or an accredited spokesperson for God are inspired and belong in the canon of Scripture. And that is essentially what a prophet is, a, a you know, someone who is a spokesperson, uh, you know, for God, a, a, someone who's accepted as a spokesperson for God, a, a mouthpiece, essentially. And we talked a little bit about that last week. There, there, you know, there's, there's that, there's a way sometimes the term prophet is used in kind of modern Christian vernacular that's kind of a broad sense of what prophet means. We will say that pastors are prophets, that they are using the gift of prophecy because they are speaking for God. That is a broad usage of the term, but that's not necessarily accurate in the way the Bible usually uses it. When the way the Bible usually uses it is in a narrow sense that says this is, was, was an accredited spokesperson for God. This is someone who God gave a direct message to and some means and said, go take this to such and such. King so and so, you know, take it to, to this tribe, take it to this group of people, whatever the case may be. Okay, Th that is more, that narrow sense of what a prophet is, is more the way that the Bible uses the term prophet. It's also the way that, that the term apostle is used, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute when we get into the New Testament. Okay, because just as the, the propheticity of something guaranteed it was canon in the Old Testament, the apostolic authority guaranteed canon in the New. Okay, so it will, like I said, we'll talk about that here in a second. So only books written by a prophet or an accredited spokesperson for God were, are inspired and belong in the canon of Scripture. Of course, while God determined canonicity by prophetisity, the people of God had to discover which of these books was, were prophetic. This was done immediately by the people of God to whom the prophet wrote, not centuries later by those who had no access to him or any way to verify his prophetic credentials. And he gives some examples. For example, Moses' books were accepted immediately and stored in a holy place. Deuteronomy 31.26 tells us that. Likewise, Joshua's books were immediately accepted and preserved along with Moses' law. Samuel wrote a book and, and added it to the collection. Daniel already had a copy of his prophetic contemporary, Jeremiah. We find that out in the book of Daniel where he's reading Jeremiah. Okay, You guys get the point. They, they authenticate one another. The, the, the canon was building. In the New Testament, Paul encourages the churches to circulate his inspired epistles or, or letters. And Peter had a collection of Paul's writings calling them scripture along with the Old Testament. 
There were a number of ways to immediate, uh, for immediate contemporaries to confirm whether someone was a prophet of God. Among these were supernatural confirmations. Sometimes this came in the form of feats of nature or other times in terms of predictive prophecy. Indeed, false prophets were weeded out if their predictions did not come true. Of course, alleged revelations from contradi- uh, that contradicted previously revealed truths were rejected as well. And we read last week that if, if someone was found to be a false prophet, they, they were to be put to death. Interestingly enough, the, the people who claim to be modern prophets, as I mentioned last week, they like to kind of do away with that little section of Scripture. You know, it's convenient. Uh, but, you know, that, that, was, that was the test in the Old Testament. The evidence that there were, was a growing canon of books accepted immediately by contemporaries who could confirm its prophetic authenticity uh, is, is that succeeding books cited pre, preceding ones. Moses' writings are, are cited throughout the Old Testament, beginning with his immediate successor, Joshua. Likewise, later prophets cited earlier ones. In the New Testament, Paul cites Peter, uh, Paul cites Luke, excuse me. Peter recognizes Paul's epistles, uh, and Jude cites Second Peter. Uh, and the book of Revelation is filled with images and ideas from previous scripture, uh, especially from Daniel. So you guys get the point. That's kind of how Old Testament canon was determined. It had to come from a prophet, and when a prophet gave it, it was accepted immediately by the people because they saw the test of that person being a true prophet. And, and if the things that that prophet did or said did not come true, then you know they were to be put to death and their word was never to be accepted. And you saw that canon start to build as the Old Testament goes, and, and you know one author will quote another, quote it as scripture, you know, and you see that that building of the canon. So by the time we get to the New Testament, the time of Jesus, uh, the canon of the Old Testament was already accepted. Now, New Testament. I mentioned apostolic authority. What did it mean to be an apostle? An an apostle, again, essentially means, it's a little different than a a, a mouthpiece or a spokesperson. It's an authentic witness to something, an authoritative witness. Again, some in in the church kind of use it in a modern way to say that, that missionaries are apostles. They, they are executing the, the, you know, the gift of being an apostle because they are sent out from the church as authoritative witnesses. As I mentioned last week, I, I hate that. I, I hate it because it's confusing. You know, was there a broader sense and a narrow sense of how the term could be used? Yes, there is. But in the New Testament, you see it used in a narrow sense almost exclusively. Occasionally, you will see the broader sense used, occasionally. But that is very rare. What is usually used is the narrow sense of the term, speaking about a a group of individuals who were considered to be the authoritative witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what you see in the New Testament. In fact, that's what the New Testament says itself. There's a passage of scripture that's often overlooked when it comes to this that I'd like to, to read to you guys today. 
you can follow along if you'd like in Acts chapter 1. This is right after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And this is when Matthias is, comes to replace Judas. And we're going to start reading in verse 12 and, uh, you know, to kind of set it up. Uh, and, and, and then we're going to read through verse 17 uh, you know, to kind of set this up. And then uh, I'm going to drop down uh, a little bit into verse 20 uh, to, to kind of make the point. It says, then, and here's that word, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs rooms of the house uh, where they were staying. He, and, and here he gives the names. Now, I'm going I'm to skip the names. I think most of us know the names of, of the disciples, but the, the, that's the names that he gives. In verse 14, he says, They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. During this time, when, a, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up addressing them. Brothers, he said, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, uh, who, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by the Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. You know, he's already speaking of what they did as the ministry. You know, now, we're going to see here in a second, he, he's using that in, in a narrow sense. So he starts talking about Judas, and in verses 18 and 19, he kind of tells more of the story of Judas's death. Uh, we're going to skip that because that's not really important for what we're talking about here this morning. Let's pick up in verse 20. Peter continued, this was written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his, his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now we must choose to replace uh, a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus, from the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us. Whoever is chosen will join us as, and notice the word there, as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. Some of you may have an apostle, okay? It's the same term, same phrase. It's what apostle means, an official witness. Notice what he is saying. Now, there's 120 people in that room, okay? They were all followers of Jesus. They were all involved in the ministry of Jesus in one way or another, they were all to continue being in the ministry of Jesus in one way or another, but out of all that group, they're going to choose one to become a part of this official ministry. You guys get the point? They saw what the apostles were as separate from the rest of the group. Even though they were all important, they were all Jesus' followers, they were all involved in Jesus' ministry, but being an apostle was different. It was different, and they were going to pick one person to come in and take Judas's place. So they nominated, it says, two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. It's very clear. They are not using the term apostle in a broad sense. 
It's as narrow as it can be. They are adding to the group of the 11 by adding one. You guys get the point. That's how apostle is used predominantly in the New Testament. That's how we are going to use it this morning, talking about canonicity. Paul later on was, you know, came to be considered an apostle. And how does he refer to himself in 1 Corinthians? He, 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 as one who was, was born late, he, uh, he came along late after the others. He, he considered himself the least of the apostles because he sinned against God and he, and he persecuted the church, but yet God made him what he was. You know, and, and so again, you see Paul using that term in a very narrow, select way of that group of, of men who were chosen to be the official witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And that's really what an apostle was. They were the official witnesses of Jesus. It's interesting that, that you know, two things that, that, that come to my mind. One is when, when Peter, you know, when Jesus, you know, was, was you know, take, took, took them to, to Caesarea Philippi into the, kind of the, the heart of what was considered pagan territory, uh, enemy, he, he said, you know, who do men I am, and they, you know, all said prophets and, and all these wonderful things, but not the, you know, the correct thing. And, and, and Jesus says, well, who do you think I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are God. You are the waited for Messiah. And even beyond that, you are God. And, and Jesus told him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because, you know, you didn't learn this on your own. God showed this to you. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. I, I, I'm going to build my church, you know, on essentially on this confession of faith. And I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And what you lock up in heaven will be locked up on earth. And what you loose in heaven will be loosened on earth. You know, that idea that, that Peter, as the head of the apostles, and the apostles themselves, like collectively as a group, God was saying, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. You're going to say what things are binding here on earth. You're essentially going to lay down the groundwork for my church, and I'm going to build my church on that. And, and, and what you bind here, I'll bind in heaven. Later on, you see the Apostle Paul write, write again. He, you know, he says the church is built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. Yeah, the foundation that all the church is built on are, are the, what the prophets and the apostles laid down. Again, that's kind of another way of saying the Old and the New Testament. Prophetisity and apostolic authority. So it was all built on that. A couple of things that had to happen. One, in order to be accepted into the, the, the New Testament canon... It had to either be written by an apostle or have an apostolic authority behind it. An apostle had to kind of give it the, the A-OK. Luke was a disciple of Paul, so in many ways what Luke is writing has the authority of Paul behind it. John Mark was a disciple of Peter and, and had the authority of Peter behind what he wrote. You guys get the, get the point. Had to either be written by an apostle itself or have like the stamp of approval of, of an apostle, apostolic authority. Nothing got into the, you know, nothing was accepted as being scripture unless it had that. Okay? So that was the, the, the first 
and, and foremost part of what was considered New Testament canon, the test of, of, of the canon. Another thing was it had to be widely recognized by the early church. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it had to be, again, just as the Old Testament, I said a prophet would, would give something and the people of God would immediately recognize that, that this was, you know, this was prophetic, this was God's word. Same thing happened in the New Testament. A lot of times people talk about, well, you know, they didn't uh, until like these later councils is when they recognized Scripture. That's not really true. The later councils were the first one to put it down in an organized list. And, and finally put it down in a final list and say, hey, here is, you know, because by then there was starting to be debate about this. Early in the church, there wasn't really a big debate, and so they didn't bother with it. But as things went on, they, they had other, actually other canons that, that, you know, begin about the year two, 200. I'm going to read something about that here in a minute. Uh, but, you know, when, finally there had been enough debate, they, they basically said, okay, we need to end this, and we need to put down a, you know, a list, authoritative list, and say this is the New Testament. And so that's what they did. But it was, as I mentioned earlier, it was Scripture long before that, and it was recognized by the vast majority of the church long before that. And another thing, it had to have the internal character of the Word of God. In other words, just because, say, Paul wrote it, or Peter wrote it, or John wrote it, did not mean it ended up in Scripture. We know they wrote many other things. In fact, in uh, the, the, the two letters we have from Paul to the church at Corinth, he mentions there are two other letters. Sometimes you'll hear people say, boy, I wonder what are in those. Does that mean there's lost Scripture? No, that means there's not lost Scripture. That means there's two lost letters. They were not scripture. They were never seen as scripture. If they were seen as scripture, they wouldn't be lost. There are no lost scriptures. That's nonsense. That's like stuff that, you know, ends up on 2020 and that kind of nonsense. There are no lost scriptures out there. The canon is closed. We have it all. Okay? That is authoritative orthodox Christian belief. Yeah, that's it. There's no more coming. What you got is what you got. And the Bible says that is enough. That is, that is all we need for everything we, we need to do to live for Jesus Christ. No more is needed. You guys get it? Okay? That, 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 that is, you know, Paul wrote a lot of letters. John wrote a lot of letters. If Paul wrote a book of recipes, it wasn't going to end up in Scripture. You guys get, you know, get the point? He may have been a fantastic cook. We don't know. Maybe he wrote a book of recipes, it wasn't going to end up in there because the internal content within it did not state that it was Scripture. Okay, so everybody with me? All right? Some things are Scripture and some things are not. And the early church recognized these things. Again, let me uh, read something here from Dr. Geisler about this. It says, when challenging a heretical uh, teaching such as that of Marcion, the Gnostic, who rejected all but part of Luke and ten of Paul's epistles, all but the, the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, the church responded by officially defining the extent of the canon. You notice, they, they, they didn't really do this until it, it came a need. 
because up until that point, the, you know, the, it really wasn't a need. But now all of a sudden, Marcion comes along and he's, you know, he's challenging these things and trying to throw books out. And so the church got together a council. I mean, you know, they got church leaders, church, you know, church theologians from all over the Christian world, and they all got together in one place and they said, "Okay, what are we, you know, what are we going to do about this?" Okay. Lists of apostolic books and collections of their writings were made uh, from early times, beginning in the second century. These include the Moratorian Canon in 170 A.D., the Apostolic Canon circa 300, Cheltenham Canon circa 360, and the Athanasian Canon in, in circa 365, as well as the Old Latin translation, which was circa 200. This process culminated in the late 4th and early 5th centuries at the councils of Hippo in 393 and Carthage in 410, which listed the 27 books of the New Testament as the complete canon. Every major section of Christendom has accepted this as the permanent verdict of the church. Evangelical Protestants agree that the canon is closed. Like I said, all segments of Christianity... All who are Bible-believing hold that this is the New Testament. 27 books that we have in the New Testament, they are the New Testament. The canon is closed. There's no more. Okay? Now, let me read something else about this idea of a closed canon. Because every once in a while you get a little bit of pushback about this. Well, wait a minute. Couldn't we have more, you know, more books coming? And, and the answer simply is No. Two, I want you to think how dangerous that is. There are some, you know, some groups out there that accept people as prophets and apostles who believe that the word of those prophets and apostles are, stand on equal standing with God's word. That is heresy. And I don't ever use that term lightly, but that is heresy and should never be accepted by the modern church, ever. And it is dangerous, and many of those movements are dangerous movements. Again, let me read from Dr. Geiser. He says, uh, so Jesus was the full and final revelation of God to humankind. And we talked about that last week, that part of special revelation is Jesus himself. He alone could say, uh, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And of him uh, alone could it be said that in, in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Second, Jesus chose, commissioned, and credentialed 12 apostles to teach this full and final revelation that he gave them. And before he left this world, he promised those apostles to guide them into all truth, saying the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then later on he says, and when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Both of those are, by the way, in John, John 14 and John 16. This is why it is said the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And, and, and the earliest church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, Acts 2. You know, they, they continue, again, that's another one we kind of gloss over sometimes. It says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, the, the, the doctrine that the apostles laid down to them. That's what they continued in. If the apostles of Jesus did not teach this completed revelation of God, then Jesus was wrong. But as the Son of God, he could not be wrong in what he taught. Therefore, the full and final revelation of God in Christ was given by the apostles. 
Third, the apostles of Christ lived and died in the first century. Consequently, the record of this full and final revelation of Christ to the apostles was completed in the first century. Indeed, one of the qualifications of an apostle was that he was an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, which occurred in the first century. When Paul's credentials as an apostle were challenged, he said, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Indeed, he is listed with the other apostles as the last to have seen the resurrected Christ. Fourth, so that there could be no doubt as to who was uh, uh, authorized to teach this full and final revelation of God in Christ, God gave special supernatural powers to the apostles, who in turn gave them to their associates. Just step away for a second. By the way, you know, when you see the, the use of, of, you know, a lot of the miraculous works in the New Testament, it is in that context. Jesus told the apostles, he promised them, I, I will give you power. That's the word we get dynamite from, dunamis. I will give you power. And, and he connects that with their ability to be witnesses to him. They had the power themselves and they could give that power to associates of theirs in, in, in the first century. You know, and that, that, that does not mean that God does not and cannot do miracles whenever God wants to. But this is God giving that miracle working ability to these people, and it was meant to, to, to be the signs of an apostle, to authenticate the message that they were giving. That was its purpose. Let me continue on. In fact, he's going to state that here in a second. That these powers were unique to the apostles is clear from the fact that they were called the signs of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. And that certain things could only occur through the laying on of the, of the apostles' hands. And there are several examples of, in, that, in the Bible. Acts uh, 8, 18. Further, this power was promised to the apostles. And after Jesus' ministry, they exercised special apostolic functions and powers, including striking people dead who lied to the Holy Spirit and performing special signs and wonders, which included even raising the dead on command. Okay, the, essentially, Jesus gave the apostles some of the same power that he had in order to authenticate that their witness was of him. And that's where the apostolic authority, again, comes from. Fifth, there is only one authentic record of apostolic teaching in existence, and that is the 27 books of the New Testament. All other books that claim inspiration come from the second century or later. These are known as the New Testament Apocrypha and are clearly not written by the apostles since the apostles all died before the end of the first century. So all these lost gospels that you hear about in the news, Gospel of Thomas and, and the ascension of Peter and all these things, they, they were all written, in most cases, several hundred years after the time of the apostles' death. They were not written by apostles. They just tacked an apostle's name on because they knew that would get them a certain amount of acceptance. But they are not Scripture. And never have been considered scripture, were rejected as scripture at the time of their writing. It's only now that people like the Jesus Seminar have come along many, many years later and tried to say, oh, no, no, they should be a part of scripture. You know why they say that? Because they weaken what scripture actually says. They contradict what is actually in scripture in most cases, and that's why they want to put it in, because they don't like what scripture says. That, that's what it really boils down to in a nutshell. 
Let me just read one kind of closing thing about canonicity here uh, that Dr. Geisler writes. It says, the Bible is the only infallible written revelation of God to man. It is complete since both Old and New Testaments contain all the books God inspired for the faith and practice of future generations. This is confirmed by the promise of Christ, the providence of God, the preservation by the people of God, and the proclamation of the early church. Further, the Bible is is sufficient for faith and practice. Nothing more is needed. The spiritual guide to life needs no new chapters. The author inspired a complete manual uh, from the beginning and has preserved all of it intact. We don't need any more. Okay? Now, the last thing, and yeah. Yep. The Coptics? Yeah. Well, they're essentially the same as, as uh, what we call Eastern Orthodox. Uh, there's some minor differences, but essentially they come out of Orthodox Christianity, uh, and they accept mostly what the Orthodox accept. Uh, There's, again, there are some differences, uh, you know, and and so I'm not completely familiar with their text of Scripture, like exactly what all they have, but I I know a little bit about Coptic belief, and essentially they believe what what the Orthodox believe. yeah, pretty similar. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, again, most of those books are not New Testament books they're debating over. They're debating over Old Testament books. What is in the Catholic, what we call the Apocrypha, uh, what is in the Catholic Bible, uh, and and possibly, in, like I said, I don't know about the, the Coptic, but possibly the Coptic Bible. Um, you know, they, they are Old Testament books. They were things that were written during that gap of time between the last prophet of the Old Testament and Jesus. And the, the Jews themselves did not accept them as scripture, but they did revere them. They, they held a very high place to them, and they used them a lot, and they felt like at times, you know, they did teach truth. So later on, many, many years later, in fact, it, for the Catholics, it was at the Council of Trent in, in I think it was 1526, but don't hold me on that. But at the Council of Trent, it was a reaction to the the Protestant Reformation. And so the Council of Trent wanted to declare, you know, that that a lot of the things that the Catholic Church were doing that the the Protestants were against, what they were protesting, you know, which is where they got that name, the things they were protesting were actually in Scripture. The problem is, in order to do that, they had to bring in a lot of these, these other books that weren't in Scripture. Their backing for it came from those books, not from what was accepted as Scripture. So they said, well, okay, those books are Scripture. Okay? So uh, most of it was, was just, uh, it, it was a, I, I used the word polemic the other day. Uh, it was a polemic, an argument within Christianity over what was true and what was not. And so they made an overreaction in order to kind of try to back up their own their own beliefs, and they brought things into the Bible that were not supposed to be in the Bible. So that's, the, that's why we have such a strong disagreement over what is the Bible between Protestants and Catholics. Okay? Hopefully that helps a little. Yeah. Um, interpretation. 
uh, obviously, and, and this is really the last thing we have time to talk about today in the doctrine of the Bible. Uh, interpretation itself. How, how do we interpret the Bible? Now, this is obviously important because if we can't interpret the Bible, then it's very hard to communicate biblical truth. Uh, but when we started this study a few weeks ago, I talked about what, what are the, the, the kind of preconditions for doing theology. Well, one of the preconditions is interpretation. If you can't interpret the Bible, you can't talk about theology because we can't learn what the Bible says about God if we can't interpret it. Okay, so what are some rules for interpretation? Um, principles that, that help us interpret in interpretation. Uh, I, I'm kind of gleaning from a couple different uh, uh, you know, theologians, uh, kind of late theologians, Charles Ryrie and Norman Geisler. I uh, just want to kind of, you know, give a couple of, of like kind of their rules of interpretation to kind of help people interpret the Bible. I'll start with Ryrie. One, interpret grammatically and historically. Use the proper grammar of the time. If it's, you know, if it's Old Testament and it's in Hebrew or Aramaic, then use Hebrew or Aramaic grammar and understand that properly. If it's New Testament and it's in Greek, then use Greek. Understand that properly. Use the proper grammar. Don't take passages kind of out of its grammatical setting. And also interpret it historically. Well, you know, what it meant at the time, how it was understood at the time. Okay, don't, don't you know, don't try to understand everything just in, in, in like we would understand it in kind of modern English grammar, because English grammar is not Greek grammar, okay? So, you know, you use how it was written. Second, interpret according to context, the immediate context and the wider context. What is its context within the book? Look, you guys hear me say stuff like this to you all the time, but when you're doing your, your Bible study, okay, when you're studying the Bible, when you're reading the Bible, be very careful about lifting verses out of context. You do have to do that sometimes. We've done that today. As we read certain verses to back certain things up, we'll, we'll take that verse and we'll read it. But we don't do that unless we understand that's truly how the verse fits in its context. If you have any question, read everything that's around it. Look, most of the New Testament was letters. They, they were letters that were written, particularly the Apostle Paul. For, you know, he would write to a church or to an individual. And, and those letters were, were you know, seen as Scripture, as God's Word. So read it like a letter. You know, Romans is one of the most argued over and debated, you know, letters in the Bible. Because it's so heavily uh, theological. And so people debate over the theology of it. What I always tell people if they ask me about Romans is I tell them, look, take, take an hour. Sit down and read the letter to the Romans. Read it from beginning to end. Read it in its context. You know what happens most of the time when you do that? All those, those theological conundrums tend to kind of fly out the window because you're now reading it in the context of the whole as they would hear it read to them. When the pastor of that church would stand up and read that letter from the Apostle Paul, read it in its context, and then also understand it in its wider context. How does it fit with all, within all of Scripture? Because the Bible says Scripture does not contradict. The Bible, you know, we, we just talked about it this morning, the, the idea of inerrancy. From the fact that this is God's word and from the fact that God cannot make an error, 
We believe that the Bible cannot make an error, not in its original autographs. So you study Scripture by Scripture. If you're understanding it in one way and it disagrees with the rest of Scripture, guess what? You're understanding it wrong. Go back and understand it again. If you're understanding it properly, it will never contradict the rest of Scripture. So understand it within its narrow context and its wider context. C, interpret it in harmony with, well, I just mentioned that, with all Scripture. I'm jumping ahead of things. Fourth thing, uh, uh, types of literature. Ryrie talks about historic literature, like historic narrative, prophetic literature, poetry, the Gospels, the biblical letters. They are different types of literature, and we use literature in different ways. Poetry. Look, you guys that know me, particularly you know me well, you know I love poetry. You know, I I always have. I love poetry. If, if I say, like in a poem where it says, my love is like a red, red rose, I don't actually mean my love literally looks like a rose, has skin like a rose. It, you know, it's figurative, and that's what poetry is. So we don't read poetry the same way we'd read, we'd, we would read historical narrative. They are different. They're meant to be different. You know, again, you know, the, not just poetry, but the use of things like metaphor. When, when, the, when the Bible says, uh, you know, uh, I will renew your strength and you will mount up wings and fly as eagles, that, the, the Jews did not think they were going to sprout wings all of a sudden, jump off a mountain and start flying around. They knew that's not what that meant. You know, they, they got it. They understood that. And that's how we should understand Scripture too. Understand that the type of literature uh, that, that is being used Pay attention, and the last one from, from Ryrie, pay attention to the covenants. Is it talking about one of the covenants of the Bible? The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Palestinian, the Davidic, or the new covenant? Is it talking about one of the covenants? Because if it's talking about one of the covenants, it may be, you know, what it says may be specific to a certain group of people. And only to that group of people. So pay attention to whether it's part of a covenant. Now, as far as Geiser, let me uh, read this, and, and, and you know, this will be kind of our closing. Just read a couple things here from, from him. One, look for the author's meaning, not the reader's. The objective meaning of a text is the one given to it by the author, not the one attributed to it by the reader. Readers should ask what was meant by the author, not what it means to the reader. But I wish I could just like put like 20 stars beside that one. Because one of the biggest mistakes people make is they read into the text what they want to see in the text. And that is never how you should interpret the Bible. Try to take the meaning from what the Bible means, what the, re- what the writer meant, not what you mean. Okay? Two, look for the author's meaning, the, the what, and not his purpose, the why. Meaning is found... What he, uh, not in why he affirmed it. Purpose does not determine meaning. One can know what the author said without knowing why he said it. Don't sit around and try to guess why he said this because that won't help you understand it. Understand what he said, not why he said it. Three, look for meaning in the text, not beyond it. The meaning is not found beyond the text in God's mind. 
beneath the text in the mystic's mind or behind the text in the author's unexpressed intention. It is found in the text, in the author's expressed meaning. For instance, the beauty of a sculpture is not found behind, beneath, or beyond the sculpture. Rather, it is expressed in the sculpture. All textual meaning is in the text. The sentences in the context of their paragraphs, in the context of the whole piece of literature, are the formal cause of meaning. They are the form that gives meaning to all the parts. Four, look for meaning and affirmation, not implication. Another guideline is discovering the objective meaning of a text is to look for its affirmation, not its implication. Ask what the text affirms or denies, not what it implies. This is not to say that implications are not possible or important, but only that the basic meaning is not found there. Meaning uh, is in what the text affirms, not in how it can be applied. See, application comes later. Meaning has to come first. Interpret first, then apply, okay? And then uh, one last thing. Interpret it plainly, at face value. I, I used to use the term literal interpretation a lot, but people tend to misunderstand that now. They tend to think everything has to be interpreted literally in order to be a literal interpretation. That's not what it means. In fact, some cases you do incredible damage to the Bible by doing that. You know, interpret it at plain value, face value. When you read it, how does it does that make sense? What does it say plainly? After you look at all these other things, ask yourself, is that the plain understanding of this? Okay? All right, that's all we have time for. You guys will have to close in prayer on your own as you leave uh, and, and <laughs> because we're out of time here. They're going to start coming through the doors here any second. So thank you, everybody. Uh, next week, Doctrine of God. We're going to begin Doctrine of God. Um, my guess is that's probably going to be a two-week two class, all right? So Doctrine of God next week.